subplots. Layering the story. We know everything in a story must affect the protagonist in his or her quest. As in, Neil's goal is to get into Yale. So when he fails his senior history class, his heart sinks. The effect is clear, concise, and direct. And that's good. But it could be better. Since nothing spurs readers' mounting interest more than anticipation, giving us the same information that Neil will fail history via a subplot not only adds suspense, as we wonder how Neil will react when he finds out, but an indulging, and rather intriguing layer of story as well. For instance, suppose Neil deserves an A in history, but while he's toiling away in his term paper, we hop into a subplot in which his history teacher, Mr. Cupcack, a humorless hardliner, decides to fail the entire class because he's just discovered that an anonymous student posted a video on YouTube photoshopping his face onto a very naked mole rat. We wouldn't see this effect. We wouldn't see the effect this has on Neil in that particular scene, but because we know that Neil, what Neil wants to go to Yale, we'd instantly grasp the effect it will have on him when he finds out. And so, when we return to the main storyline, where Neil is just finishing up his term paper, feeling great, because he's sure it's the best thing he's ever written, confident that it'll get him the highest grade in the class, and maybe even land him the coveted valedictorian slot, we, on the other hand, are filled with a creeping dread, knowing he couldn't be more wrong. We are bristling at the unfairness of it, and rooting for him to find a way to take the teacher down. We've become his advocate. We're in his corner. We feel protective of him, and truth be told, we feel just a little bit jazzed that we're in a superior position. After all, we know something he doesn't. We're engaged to the max, complete with a vested interest in what happens next. However, it helps to keep in mind that although a subplot gets its primary meaning and resonance based on how it affects the main storyline, it has a life of its own. Subplots arc. They even have their own story question that must be resolved. For instance, don't you wonder whether that horrid Mr. Kopkak will get away with failing the entire history class? Not to mention how he got to be such a sourpuss in the first place? But not all subplots directly affect the protagonist. Sometimes their purpose is to give the protagonist necessary insight, the same way a story gives the reader insight by letting him benefit from the experience of some other poor dog. Mirroring subplots, as in mirror opposites, that is. As we noted in chapter 5, Mirroring subplots don't literary, literally mirror the main storyline because no reader wants to spend time in the Department of Redundancy department. Rather, they revolve around secondary characters in a situation similar to the one the protagonist finds himself in. And what happens in them doesn't necessarily have a direct 
external effect on the protagonist. Instead, the effect is internal, in that it changes the way the protagonist sees the situation, because mirroring subplots reveal art alternate ways in which the story question could be resolved. Thus, they either serve as a cautionary tale or validation, or provide a fresh perspective. For instance, let's say the story question is, will Daniel and Perry revive their failing marriage? In a mirroring subplot, their unhappily married neighbors, Ethan and Fiona, might simply throw in the towel and break up. This spurs our protagonists to reconsider their options and because Ethan and Fiona seem much happier than now that they're finally free, Daniel and Perry begin secretly exploring life on their own. Ah, but as mirroring subplots unfold, they tend to arc in the op op rather opposite direction from the main storyline. They often whisper, this is what you're wishing for, are you sure it's what you really want? Thus in the end, Fiona and Ethan bitterly regret their breakup, triggering Perry and Daniel's realization that maybe sticking around with the devil, you know, isn't such a bad thing after all. Plus, devils can be sort of cute in the right light. But whether mirroring or not, all subplots must earn their keep by giving us information we need to know, be it factual, psychological, or logistical, in order for the main storyline to make sense. Here are three ways a subplot can do its job. Number one, supply information that affects what's happening in the main storyline. For example, a subplot that establishes that Mr. Cupcake is so reviled he'd be parodied on YouTube and so mean-spirited he'd fail everyone in his class as a result will have a direct impact on Neil's quest. Number two, make the protagonist's quest that much harder. By failing everyone in his history class, Mr. Cupcake has indeed made Neil's quest infinitely more difficult. Number three, tell us something that deepens our understanding of the protagonist. Forget Mr. Cupcake for a minute. What about a subplot in which Neil's grandfather teaches him a clip, a clip schnozzers, revealing Neil's innate love of dog grooming, a major not yet offered at Yale? That might make the reader think, gee, I wonder if Neil really wants to go to Yale after all. And so in the end, the fact that he's going to fail history could turn out to be a good thing. Cue the subplot. Key the flashback. Tell a friend to ask you, what's the secret of comedy? And when she gets to the word secret, blurt out, timing. Sure, make the point, doesn't it? Truth is, timing is the secret to just about everything, especially subplots and their close kin flashbacks. The question is this, once you've vetted their viability, how do you know when exactly to slide them in and out of the main storyline without accidentally transforming them into dis digressions?
we already know that subplots, Dito flashbacks, sometimes give the reader a breather from the main storyline, often following a strong scene such as a major turning point, sudden revelation, or surprising twist. What we don't know is how to gauge exactly whether the information in the subplot or flashback is relevant to that moment. So, since flashbacks can be entire subplots, let's explore them as we discuss the art of timing. Flashback. What's the cause and what effect does it have? Recently, a student told me writing a writing instructor that had made it very clear to him that one of the first rules of writing is never, ever use flashbacks. It reminded me of the time back in elementary school when our teacher told us the best way to stay healthy was to eat lots of red meat, preferably with potatoes. Oh wait, does that count as a flashback? Actually, there's a grain of truth in the advice my student has given, was given, advice I suspect was spurred by frustration. I told him I was sure the instructor had simply read one too many stories in which the narrative stops cold for no apparent reason so the writer can step forward and tell the reader something really important that if we're lucky, we'll end, we'll need to know later, and if not, that the writer thought was interesting and so threw it in, for the same reason a dog licks his you-know-whats, because he can. What's worse, those flashbacks were probably full of pure exposition, telling rather than showing that went on for page after page. I told him that what the instructor probably meant was never use a flashback poorly. And because that's what most aspiring writers do, we, she probably figured she had her bases covered because poorly done, flashbacks completely derail a story. There's a footnote. I just told you that I just told that story as a guest lecturer in a colleague's class when, with a throaty laugh, she said, Ah, oh, that instructor was me. Talk about an adrenaline spike. Lucky for me, she quickly added, And, yep, that's exactly what I meant. She went on to lament the irreparable harm an ill-advised flashback can do to an otherwise engaging story. She's probably right. A poorly timed flashback is like some guy incessantly tapping your shoulder in a movie theater just after the protagonist has lost everything. You have no desire to look away from the screen knowing that the second you do the spell will be broken. That's why the guy better be telling you something you need to know right that very minute. Like the theater is on fire or you've just inherited a million dollars. The trouble with flashbacks and subplots is they yank us out of the story we're reading and shove us into something that we're not quite sure of. It reminds me of Laurie's speech at Steve, to Steve at the end of American Graffiti. He's about to leave for college and she doesn't want him to go. You know, she says, it doesn't make sense to leave home to look for a home, to give up a life to find a new life, to say goodbye to friends who love just you love just to find new friends. Indeed. That's precisely what a misplaced flashback feels like. Saying goodbye to a story you love just to find a new one. 
which, let's face it, you may not love so as much, if at all. This is exactly what happens when, knowing that at some point we're going to need to know that Pam, mother of Samantha, the protagonist, was raised by wolves. The writer decides that now is as good a time as any to plunk in a flashback of six-year-old Pam, stalking Claire with the cat. Between a scene in which Samantha finally decides to run for mayor and the one where she gives her very first campaign speech. The reader, who was really wrapped up in Samantha's decision to throw her hat into the ring, is initially confused. Who is Pam and why is she on all fours with a bunch of wolves? At first, we try to find the link between the two stories. Is Sam going to run on an environmentalist platform? Is this a dream, maybe? But the further we venture into the woods with Pam, the more we realize we have a choice to make. We can either forget about Samantha and throw our allegiance behind this new story, or leaf through the book until we find Samantha again, skipping all over, over all those wolf nonsense. It feels like we're standing on a frozen lake, and the ice beneath us has cracked neatly in two, and is beginning to drift apart. We know we can only straddle both sides for so long before we have to leap onto one or the other or fall into the water and freeze to death. And since ironically the flashback is the one moving forward, that's usually the ice flow we take refuge on. So, off we go with the wolves. And chances are it will be pretty good. We'll get pretty good. Who needs Samantha anyway? Running with the wolves is much more fun than listening to a newbie's rambling political discourse but just when our allegiance shifts to Pam the author deposits us in some stuffy high school auditorium where Samantha is nervously taking the stage except now it's Pam we miss not to mention that we're still trying to figure out what the foray into the woods has to do with anything anyway it doesn't matter if later on we find that Pam is Samantha's mom because right now at this moment we're lost which means that we were very well might not get to later. But do we really need a long flashback to tell us this? Couldn't a few well-placed snippets of backstory do the trick? Very possibly, and hey, what's the difference between a backstory and a flashback anyway?